Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's a big uh, hurricane making its way to landfall here in the United States. I'm glad, you know, there there are a few times when I'm really glad that I live where I do. Actually, in all honesty, I can't, aside from the winter, there really isn't a reason to not live in Minnesota. Winter is a very persuasive reason. Like in the dead of winter, I very frequently find myself wondering not just why I live here, but why anybody ever bothered to colonize the place. Like who... Who was making their way through in the dead of December and stopped here and thought, you know what? I'm going to stick around. I'm going to plant my flag. People who didn't like weakness. <laughs> there you go. Very fine point indeed. And, and you know, thank God for them because they, they managed to plant the seeds which blossomed into the wonderful community we have today. But uh, one of the many benefits of uh, living in Minnesota is that we don't have to deal with the uh, ever-present perennial threat of hurricane season, and apparently there's one on the way. This one's called Harvey. Uh, It has uh, winds of about 25 miles an hour. The center is located uh, over southeast Corpus Christi, Texas, and is moving north-northwest at 10 miles per hour, and it's looking to make landfall shortly, which, of course, is unquestionably going to be Donald Trump's fault. Absolutely 100%, no doubt about it, Donald Trump's fault that this hurricane is coming, certainly Donald Trump's fault. If anybody is harmed or loses their life or is in any way inconvenienced as a result of this act of God, it can be placed at the feet of the president of the United States because he happens to be a Republican. Of course, we've seen that play out before under George W. Bush when we had Hurricane Katrina, which uh, was somehow his fault, and I guarantee you, if, uh, if we see some, some disenfranchised, some intersectional minorities inconvenienced by this storm, it will be Trump's fault yet again. Of course, all the storms that took place during Barack Obama, 100% acts of God that he never could have done anything about. Why would you even be so absurd as to suggest that he could have done things differently? That's the way things work. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up with the podcast right there in your iHeartRadio app. Just do a search for Closing Argument, and our shows will pop up. 651-989-5855, the number to join us if you feel so inclined. Brad Omlin taking those calls and producing the show. From the Associated Press, some of the latest updates coming out of Charlottesville. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe has created a new commission to study racism and radicalization and what policy changes can be made to make the state more inclusive. So problem solved. We have a new commission. We have a new a new governmental advisory entity. Certainly the solution to generations of racial conflict is just within reach as a result of this. The commission is part of the governor's response to the deadly August 12th right 
white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. McAuliffe signed the executive order Thursday, creating the commission. His office has not yet announced who will be part of the new group. The commission is also tasked with hosting events to promote a public dialogue on unity and reconciliation. Now, you know, look, I, I, I speak mockingly, but I, I don't really have a strong sense that this commission shouldn't exist. I just question what it's actually trying to accomplish. Like, what do you think is going to come out of whatever work, whatever deliberation this commission does that's actually going to result in a tangible solution to the underlying problem? And to what extent is there an actual problem in public policy that needs to be addressed? I mean, that seems to be one of the things that, you know, we talked last night about the the mob that showed up at Charlottesville's first city council meeting in the aftermath of uh, the, the chaos which took place over a week ago. And they were motivated by a very similar sense that it seems Terry McAuliffe is motivated by here, which is the sense that something simply must be done, right? That's like the rallying call uh, of all governmental hysteria. Something simply must be done. A law must be passed. Some, there ought to be a law, right? No sense of why or what that law should accomplish or what the end goal is. Just somebody needs to do something. And the fact that something bad happened while these people were in power means that these people must be ousted and new people must be put in to do what? I don't know. You know, another example of it we saw here in Minneapolis in the aftermath of the Justine Damon shooting where Betsy Hodges decided to get rid of Janae Harto and put in her, her new guy, right, because we needed a, quote, change in leadership in the Minneapolis Police Department. Now I'm totally open to the possibility, perhaps even the likelihood, that we did in fact need a change of leadership in the Minneapolis Police Department. But what does that mean? Leadership towards what? What was wrong with what Janina Harto was doing that this new guy is going to do differently that was not and has not been articulated? And in a similar sense, you know, when you when you go into the Charlottesville City Council and complain about the fact that the rally happened a week and a half ago, or you go into um, the the uh, Capitol uh, or the governor's office, Terry McGulliff's office, at, with the under the premise that something simply must be done to address what took place, what do you what didn't happen? What was supposed to have happened that would have changed the outcome? Now, I do actually have an answer to that question, right? There are a couple of things you could have done. Primarily, it just it, it falls under one category, and that is enforce the law. Enforce the law and do so without prejudice, right? Don't, don't allow people who do not have a permit to be in a particular place for an unpermitted purpose to occupy that space and use it for an unpermitted purpose. If you stop it right there, then you stop the potential for anything bad happening. And the moment that somebody initiates violence, move in without hesitation and put an end to it. And if you and if the if the violence escalates to the point where it exceeds your capacity to deal with it, then you declare it an unlawful assembly, which they did, right? So that's good. But then once you've done that, you um, you take whatever action is necessary to disperse the crowd. Right, Because once it's been declared unlawful, there is no justifiable, rational, moral, or legal reason for people to remain present. Why would you want to be in an area where an unlawful assembly is taking place? Your intent can be assumed to be malicious. 
and you ought to be treated as such. If that was the attitude that authorities took and, and that their their action proceeded from that premise, then it would go a long way towards preventing the kind of violence that we saw in Charlottesville and deterring uh, acts along those lines. But unfortunately, we don't have the the will summoned um, amongst the, the, the vast majority um, of, of folks in positions of authority today to take that sort of hardline action against the initiation of violence, which is kind of weird seeing as how that's like government's one job, their one job. Another update here regarding Charlottesville from earlier in the day, a judge has waived a court hearing for the suspect charged with driving a car into a crowd of people protesting a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, killing one person. James Alex Fields Jr. of Ohio was set for a court hearing Monday morning. He's charged with second-degree murder in the death of Heather Hare and other counts, but a judge on Thursday agreed to a request from prosecutors and Fields' attorney to continue the case until December 14th. Fields will have a preliminary hearing then. A former high school teacher has said that Fields was an admirer of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. He was photographed hours before the attack with a shield bearing the emblem of Vanguard America, one of the hate groups that took part in the rally, although the group has denied any association with Fields. When you find yourself in a position where you're being denounced even by the Nazis, like the Nazi groups are saying, no, he's not one of us, right? Like you, you've ascended to a new level of moral reprehensibility, if that is even a word. All right, let's switch over to the Associated Press. A court ruled Thursday that an Internet hosting company must turn over records for a website that the government alleges was used to plan violent protests on the day of President Donald Trump's inauguration. Defense lawyers warned that the ruling by the District of Columbia Superior Court could have a chilling effect on electronic political activism and freedom of expression. Judge Robert Morin ordered DreamHost to provide the Justice Department with records for a website called Disrupt20.org from October 2016, when the site debuted, to January 2017. Prosecutors allege the site was used to organize anti-Trump protests on January 20, when more than 200 people were arrested after protesters broke windows and set fire to a limousine. Government lawyers originally obtained a search warrant for the site's records last month, but DreamHost challenged the request as overly broad and infringing on the rights of free speech and political expression for the site's approximately 1.3 million visitors. Now, there is a genuine concern here, right? Like any time that the government generally is interested in obtaining information, particularly a wide swath, you know, painting, casting a wide net on data, on information, for the, for the uh, explicit purpose of pursuing prosecutions, pursuing legal cases, that is a cause for caution, a cause for concern. Our antennas should perk up. Our red flags should start waving. That said, there is an underlying legitimate purpose here, right? Like your free speech rights, and I'm so sick and tired of this. I'm so sick and tired of people evoking their free speech rights as a defense or some sort of moral justification or rationalization for breaking the law, for violating rights, for engaging in acts of violence, for engaging in property destruction and trespass. Your, you can speak 
from wherever you have the right to be, right? Like you can get on your computer in your house and and post to your accounts all you want. You can get on top of your roof, you know, depending upon the the ordinances in your city, and you can shout to your heart's content until somebody complains about it, right? Like the, your ability to to get on a stage that you own or that you have permission to be on is unfettered. And I can't, I cannot cite a case, and I, I would I think you'd be hard pressed to find a case where somebody was fined or imprisoned specifically and explicitly because of what they said, the content of their speech. It always comes back to when you find these these cases where people claim that their free speech rights are being infringed, it always comes back to some tangential action they took, which is a rights violation. In this case, the breaking of windows uh, and uh, setting fire to a limousine and what have you. Now, that said, should there be caution here? Absolutely, because what we don't want to have happen is is the kind of FISA court mentality where we're just rubber stamping any request for information. To me, the positive development here is that there actually was a warrant. There actually was a due process, and it's an ongoing due process, and it's out in the open. We're reading about it. Well, unfortunately, I don't think history is on your side, Walter, because there was recently a Washington Post article, I think today, almost – released simultaneously with this one or no this let's see this associated press article is released tonight and uh this washington post article was released two days ago but basically the u.s court of appeals for the 11th circuit um when you th- and there's a different search process for when you search a computer too when you search a computer the supreme court recognizes a two-stage search cycle because you're searching for something digitally and that takes time and Recently, in this 11th Circuit Court uh, opinion, the judge ruled that the police had power to search a suspect's entire Facebook account. And it's, it's, not about, it's not about freedom of speech. It's about your expectation of privacy and the fact that a warrant should have some particular, uh, partic- what's the right word, particularity to it. <laughs> I can't even say it right. They should be able to articulate what they're looking yes. for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, look, what's the difference? And and I ask this in sincerity. And you know, we, we do have a break. We got to get to. But what's the difference between looking through somebody's entire Facebook account and looking through somebody's entire house? If if you know, like, when you get a warrant to physically search somebody's premise, that it says you you have the the ability to enter X premises and to search, and you may have to specify what you're looking for and how it fits in. But if you have the digital equivalent of that, what's the problem? Because when you search a physical place, it comes with that particularity uh, sure. s- clause. Like you could say, I'm going to search, I want to search his dresser drawers for marijuana. I want to search his desk drawers for marijuana. You're not going to search his shoes. You're not going to search his silverware. You're not going to search uh, you know, the clothes in his closet for a bag of weed. It has to be... I'm looking for this, and I'm going to look for it here. It can't be your entire Facebook account. It can't, it, and it really, it can't be your entire house. If it would have been in a place where a defense attorney could have could argue that it wasn't reasonable that you would keep, it wasn't reasonable that the cop had authority to search there under the warrant he was granted, then that evidence should be thrown out. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five for your opinion on the subject. Closing argument. That's Brad Ullman. I'm Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. When retired Marine Corps General John Kelly 
took his position as chief of staff in the Trump White House, we said here on the program that uh, he certainly had a tall order ahead of him, a, a large, insurmountable Mount Everest-style task in terms of bringing discipline to the White House, particularly in the context of who his boss is, and that there are natural limitations to what a chief of staff can do when the person they answer to is a large part of the problem when it comes to a lot of the ad hoc uh, randomness that takes place on a day-to-day basis. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. It's been a little while since John Kelly took over as chief of staff, and the assessment, uh, as indicated in a report here by Bloomberg, um, which is sourced by a, a number of folks in and around the administration, is that he's doing a remarkable job. He's doing a really good job of locking things down, of, of having a, a tight and controlled staff uh, and administration, certainly more so than it was before. You know, they got rid of Steve Bannon, which seemed to instantly, it's amazing. They, they really kind of don't have any big leaks going on anymore after Steve Bannon was gone. kind of seems to be indicative of where the source of the problem was. Um, but... But keep in mind that only happened a week ago. That's true. So the bar is pretty low. But, I mean, how frequently were the leaks coming? I mean, it was like, it was literally, Sean Hannity was talking about, and he was not wrong, about how it was basically a leak a day since the inauguration. And when you average it all out in terms of, and he was, you know, he's probably casting a pretty wide net in terms of what he considered to be a leak. But it was a very leaky administration. Um, And, and, you know, at, at any rate. The point is, more discipline is evident in terms of Kelly taking over. But there's one area where his ability to rein things in ends, and that is with his boss, the President of the United States. Here from Bloomberg, since retired Marine Corps General John Kelly started as White House Chief of Staff last month, President Donald Trump has added a routine caveat before approving proposals advisors placed before him Check with the general before moving ahead. It's a marked departure from Trump's instinct to manage around Kelly's predecessor, Reince Priebus. When making a decision, one aide recalls Trump would often caution, don't tell Reince. Which is just astounding. Astounding. Your chief of staff don't, you know, and, and it's it, it's not at all surprising that there was the level of chaos previously in the administration that there was when that was the case, when you're basically allowing subordinates to play their own little, uh, you know, game of survivor and, and have it totally unregulated by a chief of staff. Continuing at Bloomberg, Trump's appointment of Kelly has imposed new order on a White House that had been riven with infighting among warring camps, but it hasn't been the political lifeline Republican allies had hoped for, as Kelly has so far been unable to perform one of the chief of state's most basic duties to stop a president from following his worst instincts. Trump's controversial initial response to the violence in Charlottesville compounded by an off-the-cuff press conference days later and then defended again with a divisive revisionist speech Tuesday in Phoenix, have laid bare the limits of Kelly's ability to manage his boss. This month may be the most politically damaging so far of Trump's presidency, 
as the legitimacy he appeared to confer on white supremacists alienated allies in corporate America and antagonized Republican lawmakers. The ultimate tr or the ultimatum Trump issued Tuesday that he would shut down the federal government unless uh, his fellow Republicans who control Congress pay for the border wall, he promised, compounds the challenges for Kelly ahead of the September 30th funding deadline. Trump kept a feud with congressional leaders going Thursday morning with a series of tweets lashing out at Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan for the legislative mess over raising the legal federal debt limit by late September to avoid a default. Trump's threat. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To shut down the government over wall funding complicates passage of the debt ceiling legislation, which might be packaged together with the funding measure to win enough votes. He also renewed an attack on McConnell over the Senate's failure to pass an Obamacare repeal. It does seem strange that we would have a, a sitting president issue an ultimatum of this nature. And granted, you know, I understand and, and um, you know, I'm not trying to impose my positions on the president. His positions are his and he, he won office and he has the prerogative to pursue the platform that he was elected on. That said, it is odd to see this type of ultimatum, this type of standoff set up against the legislature, against the Congress when it is controlled by your party, right? Like the antagonism here is not between Donald Trump and Democrats. It's between Donald Trump and his fellow Republicans. Like the, the party lines no longer really seem to exist in this context. You know, it has become it is it is in some ways it's become Trump against the world, which is actually favorable to his brand. I know that's part of the reason why people love him so much is because they perceive him as, you know, the, the lone man out in the wilderness, you know, taking it to the, the, the establishment and draining the swamp and what have you. Is that the effect that we're going to see going forward uh, with this particular uh, under this particular chief of staff? I don't know. I don't know. I tend to doubt it because, you know, the limitation is you can't you can't go beyond. You can't push past the the personality traits and uh, the, the strategy choices of the guy in charge. An example of that real quick before we go to break from Politico. President Donald Trump on Thursday retweeted a series of images that shows Trump's photo shifting over a cover, uh, shifting over to cover a photo of former President Barack Obama with the caption, the best eclipse ever. You've probably seen this on social media. It's actually pretty hilarious. It's a color photo of Donald Trump slowly inching its way across a black and white photo of Barack Obama, and it's titled The Best Eclipse Ever, which, of course, to the left, has all sorts of racial connotations, and it's just further evidence that we're all Nazis now. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, I think my favorite moment of tonight was when we had Dave Benner and Jake Duesenberg in studio last hour, and we were debating foreign policy and Trump's 
announced policy shift in Afghanistan, and the two of them started to argue with one another, not over, like, what should happen, not over the course that ought to be taken. They agreed that we ought to pull all our troops out of Afghanistan, right? But they got into it over the constitutionality of Trump issuing the order to pull the troops out of Afghanistan without there first being a declaration of war, uh, according to Benner. That's the type. If only our debates in Congress and in the public discourse were on that level, we'd be living in a totally different world. And, of course, uh, Brad just shared with me over the break that he's in the midst of, uh, of an online debate. What was the topic? We're argue- Dave said that um, the president doesn't have the powers of the commander-in-chief unless Congress declares war. But that's But I argued that in Federalist Number 69, it just says that the president doesn't have power to unilaterally, unilaterally declare and fund war. Right. Because in Federalist Paper Number 23, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton wrote, These powers of the federal government to provide for the common defense ought to exist without limitation, because it is impossible to foresee or define the extent of variety of national exigencies or the correspondent exigencies extent and variety of the means which may be necessary to satisfy them. Yeah, the, this is the the level of discourse that we ought to have, but don't. And I laugh, but at the same time, I cry inside because I, I only wish that uh, our leaders were concerned with the application of such principle. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on the podcast right there in your iHeartRadio app, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Let's go to Corey in Rockford. Welcome to the program. Hi, how's it going? It's going. What's on your mind tonight? Hey, we're going to say that there's no way that Trump could be a Nazi because of his daughter's I've actually married Jewish men. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, apparently I'm a racist, so, and I'm half black and have mixed race children and a black father. So I, apparently yeah. you can, anybody can be a Nazi, anybody can be a racist. Doesn't matter what your associations are. Yeah. I mean, that's just impossible. You would have never allowed that to happen. Yeah. Well, and then there's that, you know, he, he went to Israel, he, wear, he wore a yarmulke, he prayed at the, the Wailing Wall. I hope I'm getting the nomenclature right here. I'm not particularly up to, to snuff on my, uh, my uh, Jewish cultural knowledge, but it, there's, there's been many indications that this guy is the furthest thing from an anti-Semite that you can, you can possibly get. But, yeah. you know, that's not convenient to the narrative, right? So yeah. and the, the narrative must prevail. The show must go on. Yeah. It's like no. It's like you guys just don't get it. Right. All right. Appreciate your call, Corey. As always, want to talk about a couple of uh, policy issues that Trump finds himself facing. Let's start with Reuters. Let's see. The White House is expected to tell the Pentagon in coming days how to implement a ban on transgender people in the military. Now, I have to say. I was starting to cross my fingers and hope that this issue was just going to go away. That that after Trump's ill-advised, and I think it's safe to say that it was ill-advised, ill-considered, it wasn't even advised. It, I wish it had been advised. That would have been really nice. His ill-considered tweet 
along these lines uh, would have just kind of floated downstream and out of our consciousness, and we wouldn't have had to talk about it ever again. I think it was advised, and the commander said, uh, yeah, that's probably not something you should stick your hands in, Trump. But he did it anyway. A half second after he'd pushed yeah. send. Well, and the reason he did it is to avoid it being tied up in his wall funding bill, just right. like he's talking about the budget now. Right. Yeah. Well, and that and yeah, that's the thing, and that's the that's the angle that people missed. And I think yeah. it, past a certain point, it was intentionally missing it. Well, because because that would have to be included in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is part of the budget. Right. According to a memo that says the defense secretary may decide whether to remove service members based on their ability to deploy, uh, and, and this, according to a U.S. official on Wednesday, uh, the White House is expected to give the Pentagon some guidance on how to implement this ban. The two-and-a-half-page White House document gives Defense Secretary Jim Mattis six months to fully implement the ban, this according to Reuters. And uh, they're sourcing a story that was first reported by the Wall Street Journal and confirmed by an official. It also directs the Defense Department to deny admittance to transgender individuals and to stop spending on medical treatment regimens for those uh, currently serving. The Journal reported citing U.S. officials. Mattis is expected to consider deployability, meaning the ability to serve in a war zone, participate in exercises, or live for months on a ship as a main legal reason to decide whether to separate service members from the military, the journal reported. I don't, I don't know how you make that determination in an objective manner, right? Like the nice thing about the, the way the policy was before, whether you agree with it or disagree with it in terms of the, the, the longstanding ban on transgender individuals that had been in place up to just a couple of, well, up, up to last year, I believe, um, under Barack Obama. The nice thing about it was that at the very least, it was objective in the sense that once it was established that a person had a transgender identity, then they no longer got to be in the military. I mean, that was the policy, right? It was a, it was a hard line. Whereas it was this, more like don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell situation, you know, it, which provided some degree of clarity in terms of what the expectation was. This allows a lot of room for subjective judgment, which allows a lot of room for discrimination. Uh, and and it, it's, it doesn't sound like a very neat way to execute the policy to me. Continuing at Reuters, President Donald Trump said on Twitter on July 26th that the U.S. government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the military, a reversal of Pentagon policy. The surprise announcement citing health care costs and unit disruption appealed to some in Trump's conservative political base but created uncertainty for thousands of transgender service members, many of whom came out after, after the Pentagon said in 2016 it would allow transgender people to serve openly. Now, I think that point bears a little bit of uh, focus. It, 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 it should be something that we dwell upon for a second. The fact that there were, if we can take this at face value, thousands of transgender individuals who were serving in the military prior to it being uh, the shift in policy where they could openly do so. That would seem to me to indicate fairly conclusively that you can, in fact, be a transgender individual and effectively serve, right? So the this standard of, you know, can they perform um, can they be deployed overseas? Can they be in a, live in a ship? Can they serve in a war zone? What have you? The answer is obviously yes, because it's been happening, right? 
that's the kind of style of of analysis that I think ought to be applied here. Not to say that that we ought to have you know guys running around in dresses on on barracks or what have you, um, but but just the, the, to kind of go back to the don't ask, don't tell um, concept, the idea of look, we don't care what you do or or what you think or what you say in your time, but if as long as you're able to come onto onto base and be deployed in the field and can conduct your missions effectively and not be a disrupting factor to the rest of your unit, uh, the, the rest of your fellow service members, whatever. But it wasn't to the same extent because now you can have people who have the genitalia of a man living with women, showering with women. Sure, sure. And that is a huge difference. Sure. And Solid point, solid point. And, and where, you know, you're a man – Biologically, a man wearing a woman's uniform, adhering to their PT standards, adhering to right. uh, their uniform standards, and having the army pay for your hormone treatments. I don't think if you were if you were transgender in the military before uh, the ban was lifted, that you would have gone to the same extent right. in your treatment and transition until after you got out of the army. Yeah, I, I guess it's unclear, and that's part of the problem as to whether or not what Trump is trying to affect here is a uh, a a shift back to the way things were or something more aggressive. It sounds like something more aggressive than what was in place before. Well, I have to like think that if it's going to be based on deployability, then <laughs> there legitimately could be an argument, I think, where a woman who is transitioning to a man is discriminate so a court would argue or a judge or an attorney would argue that women who transition to men are discriminated against more than men who are transitioning to women because the PT standards are higher right. for men and once you transition you have to adhere to those PT standards so if you fail a PT test then you are non-deployable technically. Right, right. So therefore, because the standard would be a greater jump for, for people who are transitioning from women to men, then the pro, the uh, policy would be discriminatory. Which is a hypothetical scenario that really demonstrates the absurdity of the entire topic. Because you know, if if gender truly doesn't matter, which is the fundamental premise of transgenderism, then why do we even have differing PT standards to begin with? And you know it. If, if disparate impact is something that demonstrates an inherent bias that needs to be solved through uh, governmental policy, then, then the prerequisite for even observing that disparate impact is identifying the genders which the left is telling us don't exist. You've reached a, a sort of uh, rhetorical paradox on the left where everything's stupid and nothing makes sense. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So in the wake of the Justine Damon shooting and, of course, a variety of uh, similar incidents that have evoked conversation, debate, and rancor regarding our policing policy and our culture of policing here in the United States of America and here in Minnesota in particular, the, the question has been raised on more than one occasion of whether or not it would be worthwhile to take a look at residency 
right? Where do these police officers live? And if they don't live in the community, indeed, if they don't live anywhere near the communities that they're patrolling and that they're, that they're policing, to what extent does that represent a denial of the capacity to consent to how you're governed, right? Like, shouldn't there be some connection between the, the values of the community and the individuals who are tasked with enforcing the law there? That's a question that we're going to get into here a little bit on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 for your two cents on the topic. From the Star Tribune, while its police force may be on the smaller side, Anoka is arguably one of the most guarded places around. That's because the suburb, about 40 minutes north of the Twin Cities, is home to 27 Minneapolis police officers, nearly outnumbering the town's 29-member department. Another 29 Minneapolis cops reside in nearby Andover, which doesn't have its own police department. In fact, Minneapolis police officers living outside of the city is more the rule than the exception. Of the department's 873 sworn officers, only about 8% or 72 officers live in zip codes that cover most of Minneapolis, according to a Star Tribune analysis of city records. Not that times have changed all that much. In 1989, about 70% of the police force lived elsewhere. Today, you're more likely to run into a Minneapolis cop after hours and out of uniform in Hudson, Wisconsin, home to 10 officers, or Elk River, home to 12, than in parts of the north side, the records show. One officer commutes about 60 miles each way from the city of his or her home in Duranda, Wisconsin. Another's home address is listed in city records as Cedar Rapids, Iowa, roughly an hour's flight from the Twin Cities. The fractious debate over whether officers should live in the communities they patrol resurfaced in the wake of a series of high-profile police shootings, including that of Justine Damon in South Minneapolis last month. One way of bridging the divide between law enforcement and communities of color is to have the two sides live next to each other, say some advocates. New Minneapolis Police Chief Madeira Arredondo said at a community forum last week that where an officer lives matters less than his or her willingness to serve, and that working to stem racial profiling and recruit more minorities are important to regaining public trust. Now, I'm going to go out of limb here and speculate that this is perhaps the first example of Arredondo speaking politically rather than speaking from the heart. Because I, I got to imagine, you know, if you got him, if you got, if you cornered him privately, or if you happened upon him in a bar and he had a couple of drinks in him and you were to talk to him about the value of residency, he would probably concede that it would be ideal in a perfect world to have a police force that was overwhelmingly uh, consisted of officers who actually had some sort of connection to the community. I think the reason why he has to give this answer is practical. There's a couple There's a couple of things that are feeding into it. Later on uh, in this article, it points out, and I can't immediately find it through scanning, that it's actually against state law. This is something I did not know before I read this article. It's actually against state law for cities to prohibit the hiring of police officers from outside the city. In other words, a city cannot, of its own accord, decide that they're going to focus their hiring on people who actually live within their city limits, which strikes me as a really bizarre statute. Like, what is the, the, uh, the governmental interest, the compelling state interest 
in preventing municipalities from dictating their own recruitment policies regarding law enforcement. I don't understand that at all. It strikes me as something that's probably a uh, a throwaway, uh, a gift to the the police unions. But the other aspect of this is just the 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 market factor of how do you find the people who actually live in Minneapolis, who actually live in the community, who are going to qualify for and even be interested in being police officers? That's a huge problem. You know, on the, on the one hand, is it, would it be ideal to have police officers who live in the communities that they're patrolling? Absolutely. But at, at a certain point, if the trade-off is such that you're actually sacrificing quality in terms of qualified candidates in order to pursue that objective, there comes a point of diminishing returns past which it's not worth pursuing. So that's the 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 juggling act that I think Arredondo finds himself in, even though he can't say it explicitly. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Four, 9 to 11 weeknights. We'll be on tomorrow night. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.